Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Aurelius Podcast. This time around, we have Indy Young as our guest, and what a wonderful conversation we had with her. Indy has been doing some very deep thinking with a ton of experience in the research and synthesis and empathy space within our field of design and UX for a very long time. We had a conversation with her where we talked about what she's doing now, what she calls problem space researcher. And we actually talk about the difference between problem space research and solutions research and why that matters. We then get into what a lot of Indy's recent thinking has been about, which is thinking styles in research and then how we apply those things in design. We cover a number of topics ranging from how artificial intelligence can help create emergent experiences in the future, different types of empathy, and even tactical examples of how we can make better sense of what we learned from user research to make better design and product decisions. This was an awesome episode from a very awesome, a very smart guest and someone I've had a ton of respect for for a very long time. And I think you're really going to enjoy the show. Just one more shout out that I want to let you know, we are actually still in beta for Aurelius, our user research and insights tool for design and product teams. You can go and sign up for beta right now. And the reason I mention that is because we're actually getting ready for our public launch where we're going to start charging for the product. If you'd like to get in and check it out for free, see what we're up to, just head over to our website, sign up, and we'll send you an invite. All right, with that, let's get on to the show. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 15 with Indy Young. She is a problem space researcher, author, and consultant. Indy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. We're very glad to have you. And uh, I know I can speak for myself and probably many others. I've been following your work for a very long time. And I would say for me, probably close to 10 years after I read your book, uh, Mental Models, and was implementing that at the company I was working for at the time. And uh, very grateful for that. So again, honored to have you here. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time. Ten years, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, we were talking earlier about you, uh, where you where you met up with me at one of the uh, conferences. Yeah, UX Am Week. UX Week yeah, 20, wow. 2010, I believe it was. It's a good conference. It's a great conference. One of my favorites all time. Yeah. Well, so ten years. What uh, what have you been doing recently? Tell our listeners a little bit more about the work you're doing now. <laughs> oh my God. Um, well, uh, what, what's top of mind right now is um, kind of trying to get my next book started. There's, you know, how you get this sort of itch to, to do some more writing about something. And um, the, the point uh, that I want to try to do is combine this idea of um, supporting non-dominant thinking styles, which comes up in the diversity arena. Mm-hmm. Um, with product development, with uh, technology, uh, and trying to um, uh, sort of draw a line, uh, make a case that those are two of the same things. Um, and then on at least the, the technology product side, make a case for the idea that problem space research can really support those efforts, can really uh, actually sort of define the, the pathways that you can follow. And there are many, many pathways, but it'll help you delineate which ones there are and help you have a discussion about prioritizing those. Yeah. Well, that's great. You know, I it, it, we've talked about this a couple of times now. And, you know, you even described yourself as a problem space researcher. And I can imagine <laughs> that even the people listening to the podcast might say, well, what does that really mean? You know, what if, if, how would I know if I'm calling myself a problem space researcher in your words? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So theoretically, if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard of the phrase solution space and the phrase problem space. You've heard of design thinking. Um, you've heard of the phrase fall in love with the problem. Um, and it all sort of has to do with really focusing on the people that you're trying to support. Oftentimes, those people are called the customer or the user. 
Um, and what I've been trying to do is separate that out a little bit farther. I think when we still refer to people as customers and users, we're looking at them through the lens of our offering, through the lens of our organization, what we do to support them and how we think about them and um, you know, all, all, the, all the knowledge we already have about them. But it tends to force us back into the mindset of problem solving. Mm -hmm. It tends to encourage us to come up with new ideas, do idea generation, innovation work, that kind of thing. Um, where I would like for us to um, insert a little bit more knowledge that has nothing to do with innovating, that has nothing to do with idea generation, that only has to do with understanding. Hmm. Um, so this is this is what my second book was about, Practical Empathy. Um, it's the idea of taking that first step in design thinking, which is called empathize, um, and snapping it off and making it not a part of a cycle, sure. not a part of something that you go around and around on to improve a product or even to come up with new ideas or new directions for a product, um, where you're then prototyping and testing, where the very next step is the exciting step. I think everybody gets credit for good ideas and it's exciting to talk about ideas and a lot of attention is paid to you know, ways to generate ideas. I know Christina on your um, podcast earlier was talking about uh, not doing brainstorming where the loudest voices or the most extroverted people will have their ideas out there, where she does this sort of quiet idea generation on sticky notes and then these ideas of having to create a number of ideas in a certain amount of time, et cetera. But all of this focus on ideas is, I think, very very tempting for people to just skip over the understanding part. Mm -hmm. So the reason I'm snapping it off um, and trying to make it into a completely separate cycle, I have diagrams about this all over my website and actually in the book Practical Empathy, um, is because if you think of the problem space just as understanding a person, not understanding a user, not understanding a customer, not a member, not you know any of those words that you use to reference the people who have an, a relationship to your organization. If you just try to understand a person, you let go of your need to solve problems. Mm -hmm. okay? okay. So instead of that, that phrase, fall in love with the problem is like, well, in a way, it really starts to fade into or edge into fall in love with solutions for the problem, fall in love with solving the problem. There's that shadow word solving in there, yeah. which puts it still in solution land, right? Um, so actually, instead of that phrase, um, uh, fall in love with the problem, I like to say build an enduring relationship with the problem. Oh, okay. This right? is a very interesting turn. Okay, everybody loves falling in love. Falling in love is fun. <laughs> it can be. It can. It cannot be too. <laughs> it cannot be too, but it's a thrill, right? Okay, we can say it's a thrill, positive or negative. That's right? true. It doesn't. It does release right. endorphins, which we all enjoy. That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is established. But the building of the enduring relationship, right? The thing that lasts over time. The thing that enables you to understand the other person and live with the other person and work with the other person. That takes work. That takes effort. Yeah. It's hard. Right. Definitely. So this is uh, really quite curious for me. It sounds to me like you're advocating for almost more uh, kind of point in time, much deeper, but longer shelf life type research. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds to me like this is tapping into the philosophy of a person or a group of peoples. Mm -hmm. right which is perhaps more yeah. important and to kind of bring it back to a more tactical place just because you know i think that helps people understand things sometimes but um even accessibility is a perfect example of this right mm -hmm. where the things we build have to be accessible to all peoples and so um because of that starting with an accessible uh, point of view in mind first actually helps us realize how the way in which we're building the thing should be perhaps fundamentally right. different than, yeah. than the point of view we have, which of course, if we take the next level deeper, we can say, well, that's what research is all about. So we can move beyond the point of view or perspective we have. Mm 
Um, but mm-hmm. again, please keep me honest. It sounds like you're advocating, uh, which to my excitement, I hope I'm summarizing right, because it sounds like you're advocating for almost trying to, uh, as you would say, codify someone's philosophy. The people you're trying mm-hmm. to serve, not focused on the problem, but just focused on them as people and understanding mm-hmm. themes and patterns across that as opposed to focused on how you can solve a problem. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's really well said. Um, as you were talking, uh, what ran across my mind is Sarah and Eric's book, Design for Life, they talk about um, stress cases as opposed to edge cases. I, I, what they're trying to do is come up with um, some, some uh, accessibility and also, in a way, contextual um, situations where people might not be behaving the way that your quote-unquote average, which never exists, user quote-unquote, would behave. Um, and what I'm doing is codifying that. I am, I am allowing people, and I'm calling them thinking styles. I'm allowing you to take hmm. some primary research and understand what different thinking styles might be out there. Now, you can't understand all of them, but you can understand a set of them that you are most interested in right now. And then later on, let's go find out some more, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So... For example, I did some research for an airline. Um, we this was this is a different case. They actually did eight studies within the course of fourteen months. Mm. Very rare. Typically, people will do one study, like a quarter or a year. Um, yeah, or longer. <laughs> so, yeah, or longer. Yes. <laughs> um, but during the course of these eight studies, we came up with four different thinking styles that kept replicating, kept getting confirmed over and over again. Um, and what it helped the designers understand was that they were designing for one thinking style. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's fine because business-wise, that thinking style, um, which, so let me tell you a little bit about the thinking style. I've written this article called Describing Personas, which is all about trying to get away from demographics. I know yeah. that you talk about that yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the thinking styles represent, like in this airline example, they, one of them represented the person who trusted that the airline's going to get them from point A to point B, you know, reasonably time-wise. Um, and so they're kind of Zen about it. They're laid back. Okay. I've sort of set this whole day aside. Right. Yeah. And that's the one that they were all designing for. There were two others, Uh. one called the frustrated and one called the just get me there who had different approaches. The just get me there treated the airline as a bus, like a bus in the air. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So they're like, they're like getting to the gate or the, the airport at the last minute, you know, trying to get their meetings done, crashing in this extra meeting, trying, you know, before they actually even leave for the airport. Da, da, da. Yeah. It, uh, you know, and that that's all within the realm of a business uh, passenger, yeah. right? Who, yeah. who is their, their big focus. That was the but, first um, thing I thought of. Totally. Yeah, yeah. But within the realm, I mean, you could look at these contexts also within the realm of vacationers. Yeah, sure. And, okay, and and your context changes. Yes. So you might be, just get me there for business, but you might be one of these laid back Zen people when you're taking your toddler on vacation. Yeah, no. And so uh, I, the pause that we had, we had just, we had this uh, a brief conversational like pause moment uh, for those of you who can't see, obviously, because you're listening to the podcast. But mm-hmm. and, I, and the reason for that was because I finally clicked with what Indy has been talking about with this idea of thinking styles. And this is uh, like a, a bombshell of brilliance on my head right now, because what we do, right? The way, uh, well, I can't, I guess I won't speak for everybody, but the way I've done research in the past, right, is I want to find the commonality between what people are trying to achieve and what they're trying to understand and what, what outcomes they want, right? Whereas what you're saying is that there's this thinking style, which is perhaps an entirely another dimension, which either we have neglected, um, at, at, at worst or at best mm-hmm. touched on tangentially, which is mm-hmm. to say, actually those commonalities can be split 
or fractured, if you will, in different ways, depending on context. And if you were to focus on the way somebody's thinking about their life and their outcomes, uh, those things have different combinations. Um, and I realize yes. I'm talking in like very broad terms right now. So I guess is, what I'm saying yeah. is, is if you're writing a research report about this stuff, right, you want to report on here's the themes we found. Mm -hmm. That's, a, I think, a very logical and sensible step. But um, what I'm taking from this is, is if you focused on thinking styles, you can say, well, here's how to know how to combine these insights or these themes based on mm -hmm. the context. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And based on the phase kind of of what people are going through in time, um, uh, phase of, of uh, approach. So like as a passenger, you might go through a phase that's like, what does it take to get there? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and right now we, we don't have any tools that allow you to figure that out, except to pretend that you're making a reservation. Right. Sure. Um, or you might be in the phase where you're like, okay, I have to um, get to the gate on time, mm. right? Or I have to figure out how to get the, a seat that I like or something. Sure. Um, and you could be going through that phase in a number of different time points. Um, mm. But but your, your thinking style, your context, and your phase is going to intersect. Yeah. And those combinations are the combinations that then your organization can say, okay, I want to focus on this one, this one, this one, and this one, and not those for right now. Um, so I, I'm going to keep us from falling into that rut. Yeah. Right. And the other thing that I want to do, so here's where I'm, I'm sort of going forward with this is machine learning, right? Machine learning is this whole idea where the developers are like, oh, we have all this data and the data is going to tell us how to treat each person differently. Yeah. Well, so okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. It doesn't exist. Um, but theoretically, it could lead to emergent experiences. Mm, okay. Right. Provocative. It could lead to yeah. It could lead to um, you know the 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 machine having a, a listening session with the person interacting with it, and adjusting the way it works for that person. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> to do that, that, that machine, that algorithm needs to understand its own boundaries where it cannot hmm. adjust or understand, right? Yeah. Where there, there's going to be a limit, right? And, and, at, and, in, and, in, and right now, we, all, we only have one algorithm that tries to serve everybody. And what happens is that it does it assumes that it can do everything it doesn't assume that it has a boundary and so it when you run into problems and you're getting you know frustrated with it it's like la 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 i'm serving you perfectly because it doesn't realize well yeah totally it keeps pumping in the things that it's that you say that you like and you're i mean i uh i am not trying to uh, get us in a rabbit hole or anything like that but we have a beautiful <laughs> socioeconomic case study here in the United States about that exact thing happening, um, even with our own political mm -hmm. elections this past year. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that exact thing uh, very much happened where there is even investigation going on right now as to whether or not there has been influence over that knowingly that that could possibly occur. Right. This is interesting to me because you're staying on the bleeding edge of our responsibility as people who are serving these people, Ho hopefully, mm -hmm. um, for the better. But but knowing that you know these things can take a different turn, I kind of want to take a step back and share with you what I had in my mind okay. as you were describing some of what you were talking about um, as like a very tactically applied piece to what you were describing. So you were saying modes of thinking, right? And am, am, am I describing that right? Modes, thinking styles. Thinking styles. Okay. So, and then, yeah. Uh -huh. And then, okay. and then at, at certain points, right? So sequences. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What I had in my mind was almost something similar to a service design blueprint or a customer journey, right? But rather, those touch points can have a 360 view based on thinking mm -hmm. style, mm -hmm. which is a curious, a curious application of that because, as you said, then. A business can come in and say, actually, yes, this one covering the 360 point of view of that touch point or that moment in time or that moment in sequence 
is extremely important to what we're trying to do in the experience we're delivering and you know, hopefully balanced by saying also very important for that person. We can tackle that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, this is, that makes me think of some uh, conversation I had a little bit earlier today with someone who uh, was talking about how he used a mental model diagram. Actually, it was an opportunity map. So um, it had the capabilities of his organization mapped underneath the towers. Um, it was an enterprise uh, piece of enterprise software and, and they were trying to support internal people who were doing configurations for external clients or customers. Okay. Um, so that was what the opportunity map represented. And he said he loved that it was so simple, that it was not um, as complex as trying to do touch points and three yeah. dimensions in that it just showed, you know, this, this, this one dimension, well, I guess it's two dimensional really, because there's a line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one dimension would be a point. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, it, it showed this line and it's, it allowed him and his developers to recognize that they were talking past each other. Hmm. It allowed them just with, I mean, without any words being said, you just can look and you can go like, oh, oh, right. Okay, wait. So because, you know, this thing happens, you know, three or four times throughout the whole process, um, and it is sort of the same thing doesn't mean that we want to put it all in the same place in the yeah. interface. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so it was the idea that we were, uh, that we were looking at it very um, simply, I guess that allowed them to see that. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, for that case, that was a communication win. Mm-hmm. That was, a, that was the ability to get people on the same page, which it worked really well for. Um, I, I think it, it, uh, the idea of doing a, maybe a, a journey map with touch points and stuff um, and having this data layered in um, would also help with the um, kind of the innovation side yeah. of things. Uh, the, uh, I, I personally don't have that much experience with journey maps because for the past 10 years, <laughs> I haven't been designing anything. I've just been helping people get knowledge, get really deep knowledge um, and learn how to add to it and learn how to use that knowledge. Um, learn how um, to apply it, right? To uh, what somebody was saying, she's like, yeah, what we do is we, we cup our hands around this section of what we're looking at and we're like now we're going to have this deep discussion about this particular thing but we've got the um kind of the, the the way that these three thinking styles are approaching this same phase and yes. we can talk about different contexts that they're in yes yes okay so uh, you know it's at this point where i realize there's a couple things i think we should clarify for people listening that would be useful for them to not only distill, but apply what it is you're talking about, right? So even very briefly, we have mentioned mental models a couple of times. I can imagine there's probably some people listening who maybe don't know what that is. So the the 60 second version of what a mental model is. Okay, so the, a mental model is defined a lot of different ways. The definition I'm using is that it's a model that your team holds together of the way the people you're supporting think their way through to a purpose. It looks like a, a city skyline with a bunch of buildings in it. Some buildings are tall, some buildings are short. The buildings all have boxes in them. The boxes actually represent what's going through people's minds. Mm -hmm. um, this is where the, uh, the empathy part comes in. So my second book is called Practical Empathy. Um, and there are many also definitions of empathy. I use two of those definitions. I do not use um, emotional contagion, but I use emotional empathy, which in a listening session, when you're trying to draw a person out, mm. trying to get that person to tell me their inner reasoning, their reactions, the decisions they've made based on those reactions and their guiding principles. 
And to get deeper than explanation, get deeper than statements of fact and and opinions and preferences, which is what a lot of interviews are about. Sure. Um, You know, this is how I do it. This is why I'm doing it, but not like my my inner voice as I'm doing it. Yeah. Right. And the, you know, the little, (laughs) the things that go through your mind. Um, The gold flakes that surround all of the answers somebody gives you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To get at those, you have to use emotional empathy, which means be with that person in their emotion, which is like, who the hell are you? And should I trust you? (laughs) And do I want to tell you my inner thinking? And what the hell do you mean by this? You know, and do you are you going to laugh at what I say? Are you going to judge me? Right. And the more you support the person, the freer they feel, the more trusting they feel. I have gotten so many people telling me after they do these listening sessions that the participant thanks them because they've never had a chance to like unburden themselves of all the little inner, you know, the little chattering that's going on in their head. And so even right there, Indy, I just, I have to stop and pause and just say for anybody listening to this podcast, if you took nothing away from how you can do your work better today is that when you talk to customers, truly truly listen and show that you're there to support and understand them and nothing else and i promise you your work will get better yeah because it's such it's such a profound (laughs) thing is that well yeah it it is nobody gets to be listened to very often that's yes and particularly in our Mm -hmm. culture uh right so we are we are u.s based and in america um there's often a saying where in a conversation most people are just waiting for their turn to speak rather than listening to Mm -hmm. the person speaking um Mm -hmm. and i think that that's very true and that's why empathy has such a uh, such a powerful like impact when we actually see it happen okay Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go back so wait, so wait, I want to hop on that yeah. for a second. Okay, go because, for it. Um, so that is emotional empathy. And I use that in the listening sessions when I'm trying to de- collect this information so that I can then develop empathy. There's a difference between applying empathy and developing empathy. Yeah. Everybody wants to jump on the apply empathy. You know, I'm going to walk in their shoes, right? Okay. But how do you get in their shoes? Yeah. You have to develop the empathy first. You use emotional empathy to support them to collect the data, but then you use cognitive empathy to go through the transcripts that you get yeah. and piece together what they really meant to tell you because they will say a thing one way in the beginning of the conversation and mention it again in a slightly different way and again and again. And like by the end of it, you've, you, you've got a, clear understanding of it while you're in the conversation, but you walk away, you know, half an hour later, you can't quite remember exactly the, the brilliant clarity of it. Right. Yeah. So I go back through those transcripts and I pull those concepts together and I get that brilliant clarity and I stick it there in my spreadsheet. Yeah. Okay. Then I get to compare that to somebody else's approach and I look for affinities and I build those together. Those then become the towers or the buildings in the city skyline and the boxes represent their words. The boxes are actually how you stand in their shoes. Yes. Okay. You, my follow on question, uh, you went there without (laughs) me even asking, which is to say, okay, so we get this, we, we use this, um, as Indy would say, emotional empathy to gather the data. We use cognitive empathy to apply it. And that was, that was going to be my next question is to say, that's great, right? We go out and we talk to people. Let's say we've sold our stakeholders uh, on the fact that research is important and we're trying to do that really, really well. And we use the emotional empathy to gather that really rich data, the gold-flecked data, uh, as we were talking about, right? Cognitive empathy to apply that, right? Right. And this becomes what? I mean, how... I don't think that there's really anybody listening to this that would say... Yeah, no, that doesn't make sense to me. Of course, everybody, that's, that's exactly what we should do. That's that, that's brilliant. But we have to share this, empathize, even with the people we work with, right? To under, mm-hmm. help them understand why this is important for them, mm-hmm. even on a personal level, why it's important for their job or their company, but also it's important for our customers. So how do we do that? Yeah, that is the next, that's why I'm trying to write this next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Let's, uh, let's dive into yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, because um, 
not enough of it's being done. And we're, we've become at least um, had our in the US our noses sort of smeared in the fact that our digital world is not rosy. Mm. Um, <laughs> and we're responsible for it. Um, to one degree or another, uh, maybe even just bystander responsible for it. Um, but that's still responsibility. And we've got to fix it. Um, how do we fix it? Um, how do we communicate the value of it? Um, one of the ways is to understand what's on the minds of the people that make the decisions about the budget. Um, that is just a lot of people say you have to learn the language of business, right? <laughs> I personally do not know the language of business. I should learn it. Um, but I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's one of those areas that just completely falls off of me. Um, well, may I add so, something to that? Yeah. Cause it's really interesting mm -hmm. only because you brought it up. It's something that's been on my mind and, uh, has pervaded talks I've given recently as well. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that design is a business. There, and so the reality of it is uh, design is a business that serves, you know, this overall umbrella of business as well as anything else. And as soon as we started treating it that way, uh, and some are better than others, as you might mention, the sooner we start treating it that way, the more effective we can be. And so I guess just simply what I'm saying is like, uh, I actually think that you're probably better at the business thing than you give yourself credit for because people are people and you understand people really well, right? People have needs as we, we talked about at the beginning of the show, people mm -hmm. want to be loved. <laughs> Everybody likes to fall yeah. in love. Uh, and so right. we can just understand, you know, sort of what motivates people and we can help them see why serving and other people is good for them. There, so the, the, I think the problem with business, the, the problem with tech at least is, it, is that it's in a way it's all ROI based. Um, Sarah's book um, that she just put out, which is called Technically Wrong, um, talks about this. Uh, I was just talking about uh, this subject with a developer friend of mine. Mm. Um, and uh, thinking beyond the ROI, thinking beyond the metric, thinking beyond the profit is not something that is pursued. And it seems it seems as if it's tightly tied to this idea of being able to support people and especially being able to support people who are of the non-dominant thinking styles. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's say, uh, I mean, take it outside of technology even. I mean, let's say you're an insurance company um, and we're just going to look at like having auto accidents. There are different thinking styles around auto accidents that happen in different contexts. There's the make this let this be a lesson to the other guy or to me right let this be a lesson or there's the downplay it ah just one ten this will never happen again it was a really stupid you know perfect storm sort of accident thing there's there were a couple of others as well but um to take it out yeah to tell an insurance company who is focused on profit who is focused on being able to pay off all of the hurricane <laughs> or wildfire, you know, claims um, to tell them that, you know, oh, hey, you could support the people who want to downplay it differently than the people who want this to be a lesson. They're going to say, for what? For what reason? Right? Yeah. So what I have to do is tie it to market potential somehow. Mm-hmm. Right, um, because the argument goes, the developer friend of mine was telling me, "Oh yeah, you know, I mean, we can, we can solve the problem for, you know, most of the people, and maybe twenty people. We can't, you know, they're just, it's not going to help them, whatever." And I'm like, "But those twenty people could represent two thousand actual human beings, or maybe even two hundred thousand, or two million, or twenty million." right? Actual human beings, and you're going whatever about them. So really, what I really wish is that the rest of us, because we are developing so many more coders, um, and so many more talented young people, let's have those young people like have the freedom to go out and, and design apps 
for the the two million people who aren't being served, right? Why is that not happening? There is a there is a there is a vacuum they call it right now. Um, the those two million people are not being served by any of the apps that are out there right now or okay. any of the services, right? But there is no choice for them. There is no alternative for them. If there were, if that alternative appeared in the market, those people would like, like you know, iron filings to a magnet. Yeah. It, it, so why, hmm. why is nobody pursuing that? I think the young people probably see it and could pursue it, but maybe just don't have the money. Um, I think the startups are run by venture capitalists who are really have their minds in a different place. Most of them. That's um, a very democratic way all, of saying that, by the way. <laughs> they're all still running by metric, by ROI, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mm -hmm. think there was this argument. You remember the argument about the long tail? Like it used sure. to be with bricks and mortar, you could only have so many products within a certain amount of square footage. Mm -hmm. And so you had to make decisions about that. And now since it's online, it means that we can go um, and, and have so many more products um, and serve like so many more people. Yeah. I think this argument ap applies here. It's a slightly different argument because we're not talking about square footage. We're talking about thinking styles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about front ends to software we're talking about experiences that if we have this machine learning future where we do have emergent experiences then we want those emergent experiences to support that other 20 or 20 million people yeah you know and it's right? almost like uh i i don't know if this does justice but to summarize a bit of what you were saying this self-imposed restraint which is so important I think in the field we work in, and, and I assume, of course, the people who are listening to our discussion are in the technology or software field. I think the majority are the self-imposed restraint, the mm -hmm. self-imposed focus. Uh, I think we can have mm -hmm. a whole other podcast that talks mm -hmm. about the reasons why that's very hard for us. Um, again, yeah, partic right? <laughs> particularly in the in the United States. Um because that gets into politics, economics, sociology, all of these things, right? But yes, if you're able to do that, you know, and I like to go back to uh, just kind of kind of throwing a shout out to uh, some folks we admire over at Basecamp, formerly 37 Signals, right? David Hannemeyer Hansen and uh, Jason Freed, they talk about this kind of thing where it's like, you don't have to build a company to take over the world. That doesn't have to be your aim. It, you can you can build a company or an, or, or an organization or a product or a service or all of those things. It just simply serves a need really well better than anything mm -hmm. else that currently does okay. that. And allow right, somebody right. else to tackle that other problem, mm -hmm. as yeah. you've said, that, that clearly yeah. still will exist and is actually a very scalable way of doing it. Yeah. Maybe this is a William Gibson or a, or a Kim Stanley Robinson sort of a future. I think one of the things I was bemoaning the other day was that we've got so much dystopian entertainment that we don't know how to think optimistically about the future. <laughs> but those guys sort of can show us some interesting things about the future and, and, and maybe, you know, collaborative groups um, being able to create things. I, I, the idea that you have to have big capital mm -hmm. to create something, we know it isn't true, and yet it still pervades. We still have this, this myth about, you know, starting in a garage, um, adapt a path. We started by having weekly meetings in each other's living rooms, right? Yeah. So uh, you don't have to have capital, but yet there's this myth in Silicon Valley that you have to go I don't know, raise fun. Maybe not. Maybe not. That's why I have so much faith in the new generation. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they're unsullied by this. I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go on the record and say it's horseshit. I completely agree with you. Um, well, there's this. Uh, I'm not gonna get too. <laughs> we're gonna edit this part out. That's for damn sure. I'm not gonna get too political or like socioeconomic on this. I think there has a lot to do with American culture that has uh, yeah. created Westernized culture as to why we feel like this like massive big bang 
you know, uh, bottle rocket on steroids kind of launch and like coming to terms of a business needs to exist. That's not true. You can mm-hmm. build an honest, stable, mm-hmm. problem-solving Small. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is more reliable yeah. than anything else you've seen. Yeah. Uh, Doesn't get the huge media coverage. No, what but you, you know what? Coverage? It solves your problem yeah. better than anything else has. Yeah, yeah. And the right. thing that's really interesting about that uh, indie is that that's exactly <laughs> who we are at Aurelius. And, and, and part of what we're doing is not only just building software or something like that. Like, that's fine. I mean, I don't mean to trivialize our product. I think what we do is great. But the other higher level, since we're talking about philosophy on this discussion, it's important to us that we do this and we do it well as an example that Mm -hmm. you can without the funding, without the big Mm -hmm. PR releases, without X, Mm -hmm. Y, and Z, to simply say, we've understood people, uh, knowledge drop on my head, people's thinking styles and serve them really well in a certain space. And now everybody prospers as a, as a result. Yeah, serve some of them pretty well. You know, there are, there are a bunch of uh, organizations that are going in this direction, like Code for America, right? Mm-hmm. For UX for good. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are a lot of organizations. I know that um, I've spoken with the folks uh, in the UK government digital office. Yeah. Um, I think they're doing it down in Australia as well. Uh, the, there are people working on this that aren't sucked into the whole glory of the <laughs> the giant IPO and blah blah blah. Um, but um, but okay. So one of the examples. This is what made me start thinking about this in in Sarah's book, uh, which is called Technically Wrong. Um, one of the examples was about an application for tracking your period. Okay. Um, and it was called Glow, and it's originally about people who are trying to get pregnant. But for some reason, the organizers of that decided that they wanted to serve people who also were not getting trying to get pregnant. But they didn't change their interface that much. Um, and then a student of uh, Christina's uh, did a rant about that particular chapter or example and said, you know, there are some men who have um, periods or trans men mm. who have periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, for example, if you go in the men's room, you're not going to have like the little bin for your your pads, right? And your tampons, and, but you will in the women's room, but um, not in the men's room and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and so she's all like, why, you know, why are, are you making this application pink? Well, why are you trying? I think the application owners, they should have just focused on people trying to get pregnant. And then, okay, let's do thinking styles within people who are trying to get pregnant because there are probably a lot of different thinking styles. Um, yeah. Significant. And why is like the student not deciding, I, not as if you know I, I know anything about the student or their resources or the amount of time any of us have, but why, why couldn't that student go and make the period tracker that is, um, for people who it could include trans men, right? Yeah. For people who are, are not trying to get pregnant and are not into pink and, you know, all that sort of thing, who have other reasons. Yeah, yeah. Very, very separate, yeah. very distinct thinking styles. Is a, that almost <laughs> uh, through this conversation may be adverse to another mode, a set of thinking styles. Is that... Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know enough. I, know, I have not done the research. The theory was that it was, um, they were trying to correlate mood with period. Okay. Uh, or, or see if there was a correlation. And I don't know what the purpose was. There was probably a purpose. Like, um, I feel like I'm depressed all the time. And why am I depressed? I don't know. Right. Uh, but there's got to be a purpose. And that was like one thing that they were doing toward that purpose. Okay. Um, so I don't know what the whole scenario is there, but it's a good example of like, hey, you know, there's someone who recognizes this and could go out and do a little bit of their own research and like cobble something together and get some friends together and like put something out there. And, and that's probably what the app stores are full of, like little apps that work for like that very particular thinking style. But what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah. I have my answer to that, but I'm not going to actually share it. Okay. 
<laughs> I think I know exactly what's wrong with that, but that's a that's an awesome set of ideas. And uh, for the purpose of our show, I'm going to use it as a segue of bringing us back to a certain okay. line of I talks. We promised each other we would try to keep it short. That's true. That's true. Um, but I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation. So we talked about thinking styles and we talked about problem states uh, research, right? Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about what that means and uh, focusing on the, the deeper, longer term effects of that understanding of a person rather than focused on the problem. So this is yes. great. And I can imagine at this point in our podcast, people are going, I want to know how I can do that tomorrow. I need yes. to convince the people I work with that we should do that, what they're going to yes. get, and how it yeah. benefits them. Yeah. So starting with the what they can get and how that benefits them, one of the ways that I go about figuring that out is to do listening sessions with my stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been on your mind? What are you trying to solve? Right? Um, I will look across stakeholders and see the affinities. Um, I'll also see the, <laughs> the like they're saying the opposite thing and like help them have discussion about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> that that's one place to begin. You're not necessarily going to... Um, like that, that's, it's, a, it's a beginning. You may then start to see themes that then you can pull together and say, hey, listen, we can solve this by understanding uh, a little bit more. So for example, um, with the uh, insurance, there was actually a client that I had where, um, and they were in an innovation center. Most of my clients are in innovation centers. Um, because they're the ones who get the budget. (laughs) Um, But um, they were interested in trying to support a particular segment Mm. better. Um, That segment was small business owners, okay? Within small business owners, we we, we didn't know enough. So basically what the problem was, was we didn't know enough to come up with, um, we had like all sorts of ideas, we meaning they, had all sorts of ideas for supporting small business owners, but which one would have traction, right? Which one would give you the most success going out the gates that you could build on it later? To answer that, we needed to know the thinking styles and we needed to understand the approaches that people were taking, all of the reasoning and stuff that went through their heads as they were trying to achieve a purpose. Um, what uh, it, it's so what we did was we set up a study where we we scoped it down to where the purpose was um, growing your business. Mm-hmm. Okay, we could have had different purposes, like you know, just you know starting a business in the very first place but it was like growing your business okay um and within growing your business what are the thinking styles um within growing your business what goes through people's minds um there was a whole section on uh financing there was a whole section on competitive analysis there was a whole section on griping about um the person who did you wrong <laughs> the vendor or you know whoever you're working with that kind of a thing and, and trying to deal with the people who are going to mess you up mm-hmm. um and those are not necessarily things that insurance is gonna cover but it's gonna help them understand in addition to those things the other very concrete areas that people are worrying about yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and be able to then come in with some product that will not only help, uh, you know, a part of it, but like uh, if it, there are several insurance companies who are associated with banks and could like coordinate. There, there's a really great example from USAA where um, they were looking at, I think it was auto claims. And one of the things was they thought at the end when the, when the claim was closed, that was a good thing. We're done. We've got good marks for closing the claim, but they found through this kind of research that it's not over 
for somebody who is in an auto accident when the claim is closed because they still have to recover physically. They have to recover emotionally. They may be feeling guilty about damage they did or an injury they caused. Um, So there's, you know, psychological stuff going on too. Um, They may also have to buy a new car because there's got totaled Mm. and they may not be in a financial situation to buy a new car or to finance a new car. And USAA is associated with, you know, they have a bank. Yeah. Um, could yeah. they not, right? Could they not put a package together? This is exactly Definitely. what this woman was telling me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that right there, it's, I mean, not even, I'm, I, I apologize that I, I kind of interjected, but that right there is like, <laughs> is that's like the answer to the question, right? Is to say, well, how do you apply this to your work? Is like, well, because we're going to understand those places where we don't know where we can offer things yeah. that even our business, it's good for our business mm-hmm. to yeah. offer that. We won't know those mm-hmm. unless we yeah. do this kind of explorative research. Uh, yeah. Particularly. Yeah. They, they also changed metrics because they were being measured. They were measuring their success in ways that had nothing to do with the success of a person. Yeah. Well, that go back that goes back to you know, you mentioned Christina Woodkey. Um she talks about OKRs, we talk about yeah. it as goals. That's the way I've done it my work. It's it's all the same thing under the same name, but if you understand exactly what it is you're trying to do and you can point to your design, your product, your research recommendations from that thing, all of a sudden <laughs> You know, the clouds part, the, the, the yes. sun shines down. <laughs> it's, it's that moment of clarity, as you've described, right. right? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just so much. It's, it's eye-opening. It's also clarity with respect to what you don't want to get involved in. Yeah. Or not yet. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up, too, because I think that's often not talked enough about. Uh, in the work that we do <laughs> with with research and strategy, which is to say, and I can't remember who the famous quote is, is uh, maybe it's Peter Drucker or Jack Welch, somebody, which is to say, uh, good strategy is simply understanding the things you should say no to. Right. Yes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like like keeping yeah. that. Or or say, okay, we'll do that later. Yeah. Oh that's yeah. For, or that's for a spinoff. Yeah. Or that's for this little little set of people we're going to incubate. Yes. And so you say you work with innovation groups, Rach. Uh, what innovation groups should we fund? We know that actually we'll have legs, yeah. mm-hmm. but we don't know nothing about. We know nothing yeah. about yeah. right now. Yeah. Why can't a corporation fund incubation? Why can't an, an incubate? Uh, I mean, a corporation do those kinds of things, like bring you know, groups of young people in who have this idea as opposed to those young people feeling like they have to rely on venture capital. Yeah. You know, uh, you just bringing that up, I had the uh, very distinct honor to be part of a an innovation group that was from a local service design company here. And they brought together a bunch of people. And I won't actually name names because I don't know if I'm allowed to, but um, their clients came in and one of them was for actually from a large U.S.-based bank. Um, and this woman talked about exactly that. And that's mm-hmm. how they actually funded their innovations mm-hmm. where they literally invited groups in of people mm-hmm. who could traditionally be seen as competitors to them, potential competitors to them and say, build us a way that you would actually, you know, slice at our knees, uh, so to speak. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, yeah. Well, also, I mean, like, where, you know how in sports they go out and scout? Mm -hmm. Why are we, you know, we we could go out and scout and scout in places that are not like the Carnegie Mellons and the Stanfords and Mm. the Harvard Business, you know, MIT or whatever. Let's go scout in, you know, some very small schools or very specialized schools. Um, let's go scout in places where people have different thinking styles, different approaches, um, and see what's cooking. And yeah. maybe something that's cooking would be something you want to pick up. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely that's definitely the crux of what that we are talking about. That kind of thing, and that and that bank that was doing that. It was actually very interesting to hear such a regulated yeah. industry was working in that way. Um, Indy, I realize we're coming up towards kind of the end of time. So 
Yep. To, to sort of wrap this up, one of the things I want to ask you is to say, if people are sitting here listening to our show and saying, Indy, I agree with everything you're saying, what are the top three things I should focus on tomorrow, next week, next month to do to help our organization do the research in this way and apply it towards <laughs> these? Yeah. The answer depends. The answer depends. Always I mean, in where, where are you? How much power do you have? Um, blah, 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 blah. I don't know that I can answer that that quickly. Um, you know, doing stakeholder listening sessions, picking up my book and learning how to do a listening session. Maybe you have all the power in the world and you want to just do this. Maybe you've got the power, but no team or no time. Mm. Hire, hire me and my team to do it. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different things you can do tomorrow. Um, I think another thing, though, is to build your own understanding and vocabulary about this idea of non-dominant thinking styles and diversity. So read books about diversity, listen to podcasts about like Code Switch and stuff. Um, find out about becoming woke um, and see if you can learn something from that to apply in your um, your own area. There's a group called Code 2040 who's focused on on uh, the computer science side of this um, and, and bringing young people. They uh, have fellows and a fellows program. Maybe get involved in that. Um, there's Black Girls Code as well. A um, little bit younger group, but um, I mean, they, they focus on younger people. Uh, there's, you know, all sorts of uh, ways you can get involved that mm. on that side too with the with the younger um, folks coming on, um, but maybe just learn learn more open open your eyes to it. I mean that's what I'm kind of going through right now because I want to uh, have something some some framework and some framing that actually exists out there yeah. to use in my new book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, um, yeah. So uh, as my usual style, I'll try to wrap that up in some kind of summary of what you said. And again, please keep me honest. Start with understanding the people. Practice empathy with people you're working with and for. Mm -hmm. And then educate yourself on how this diverse and differing perspective can actually help benefit them. Mm -hmm. And do your yes. damnedest to sell them on that. And then start doing yeah, that work. Right? <laughs> Is that fair? There you go. I like that. All right, good. <laughs> All right, you know what? I got a decent track record so far. Fifteen episodes in, and I and I'm summarizing these awesome, brilliant, complex thoughts <laughs> as best I can. Uh, I'm along. I, I was, yeah, I was gonna compliment you on that. Um, oh my goodness! You're good at, at summarizing. Um, so that is that is a that is a skill. That's a massive compliment coming from you, yeah. and uh, and I mean that very genuinely. I wanted to mention one yeah. other thing before we go, which yeah, is yeah. Um, I just released a piece of software, a little app that takes this kind of data um, and spits it out as a diagram. It spits it out as the top half of an opportunity map, the mental model diagram part, the part that looks like a city skyline. It's up to you to, to, to actually uh, start filling in that diagram with stuff below those towers. Mm -hmm. um, and you can read more about that on my website. Uh, that is uh, available um, uh, to, to use and uh, to talk about freely. Yeah, awesome. Well, that was going to be my next question. Is there anything for the folks listening to this episode that you would like to share? And so that's definitely one mm -hmm. of them. You have an upcoming yeah. book as well, I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 hopefully. <laughs> um, also, I'm trying to get a second edition out of Mental Models. It's overdue for that. I've been trying for a year though, and uh, <laughs> I have nothing to show for it. So I really need to be serious about it. Um, I've uh, been doing a lot of podcasts and a lot of talks, which have been recorded. Those are all um, on my website. So um, you can spread those around, try to get people talking about it. I also, if you have a UX book club or even an internal book club at your organization, I will do free chats with your club after you've read the book, um, kind of do Q&A or whatever. Very so good. there you have it. Very good. And we are going to make sure that we include links to all of those things in our show notes. You just go ahead and head over to our website, readlesslab.com. 
and the link to this episode with Indy Young, and we'll make sure we have links to all of that stuff. I can personally vouch for Mental Models um, version one, and I will look forward to version two whenever she gets around to it, but um, very instrumental to my work and uh, definitely attributed to where I am today. I'm honored to have had this conversation with you, Indy. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zach. Awesome. We will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. You can check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram Aurelius Lab. We'll see you next time.